This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. Her name is Melissa Oden. So she is actually a survivor of a botched saline infusion abortion. She's also the author of her memoir, You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir, and her new book, which is this one right here, Abortion Survivors Break Their Silence. In addition to that, she is the founder of the Abortion Survivors Network. This one's just a straight-up heavy one today. There's no two ways about it. Reading her story and getting into the details of the procedure that should have killed her, how after she was expelled from her mother's womb and set to the side, thinking that she was already dead, only to make a whimper, and the one nurse left in the room hearing her whimper and then being rushed to the NICU. Like, it's just an incredibly heavy story. Throughout this interview today, it was very, very hard for me to withhold emotion, and I I didn't uh, succeed in some of these cases. It's just the level of anger I felt about the people that were involved in her story, the level of sadness I felt for where those people were, where she was, where what she was put through. But she is an incredibly inspirational person because she has such a positive outlook, such a positive attitude, and she has done something incredible. She has turned something that Satan wanted to use for death and turned it into something that God is using for his light. And so in this interview, we do talk about the circumstances behind her abortion, behind her mother at the age of 19, basically being forced by her mother. So this would have been Melissa's grandmother to abort this baby, the threats that were made to the nurses uh, to, to keep this from her. Her biological mother actually didn't find out for over 30 years that Melissa had survived this botched abortion. And then we we go through all the details of that. And I mean, it is just heinous and crazy. And it's just, it's spellbinding. So really hang on and, and kind of listen to it. It's going to be uncomfortable, but you need to listen to it. But then we talk about, you know, how... God can use horrible, awful situations and people's pain for his glory. We talk about why she wrote this book, why she's trying to get the word out there about the fact that there are a ton of people that have survived these botched abortions and how their opinions need to be more mainstream. But also we talked about just uh, abortion survivors in general. We went through some common pro-abortion arguments and I got her feedback. So when someone says, my body, my choice, what do you say? When someone says, what about rape and incest? What do you say? And then we talk a little bit about her, her network, the Abortion Survivors Network, and how you guys can get involved. So again, this is a heavy one. It's appropriate for all ages, so you don't need to have uh, too much of a trigger warning here, but it's definitely, definitely worth your time, definitely worth sharing around. And I'm not going to keep her from you any longer, so without further ado, let's get into it. Melissa Oden, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I am so happy to talk with you today. I've been looking forward to this one, but uh, I typically have some sort of unique way of transitioning into my first question, but there's really no easy way to transition into talking about your your life or your amazing story. So we're just going to start from the beginning. Uh, you shouldn't be here right now, <laughs> and we'll, we'll get to that. We will certainly get to that, but let's talk about your early life. So let's talk about growing up in a family where very, very early on, you knew that you were adopted. Uh, I've, I have a lot of friends that were adopted. Many of them found out later in life. Uh, I guess later is kind of relative, but you found out really, really early, which I find that to be unique. So let's start there. Yeah, I, I think like many people, right? I grew up from my youngest age knowing I was adopted. I knew I was loved. I had an older sister who was adopted, right? Lots of people can relate to those things. I knew Jesus from my youngest age, right? I can't even tell you when I I didn't know Jesus, right? That's just who my my parents were. 
And I think like most people, right, I thought I thought I led a pretty normal life, right? Just Midwestern, sort of basic, you know, just small farming community. And then when I was 14, really everything changed. Well, and I feel like your story really kicks into high gear. And, you know, we cover this whenever we get to the book and you've covered it. And I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but there was a heated argument <laughs> that you had with your sister, Tammy, and Tammy blurted something out. And from that's kind of like a, a cornerstone moment of your life. So uh, what she blurted out was, at least my parents wanted me. And so let's go back to that moment where you're dealing with your your older sister and kind of take us through what happened there. Right. Because so far, this seems like a really boring interview, doesn't it? Of like, no, okay, so no. she was adopted. <laughs> she's from the Midwest. She knew Jesus. And so, right. And so, but right. Everybody has a backstory. Every family has a secret. And yeah, the words, at least my biological parents wanted me were earth shattering. And, you know, like any good teenage sister, I was ready to brawl if I'm being brutally honest, right? Those words, I was like, let's go, right? How yeah. dare you? And when she said those words, the look on her face really did stop me in my tracks because it was just this look of just panic, right? And we started to have this moment as siblings where she was looking at me going, oh my gosh, you don't know, do you? And I'm standing there thinking, this is what, what is this? And very ominously, she said, you know, wait up for mom and dad tonight and ask them to tell you the truth and you will see. And I think we all go through those moments, right? We're like, what the heck, right? What, what, what is this? What could it be? And you think you are prepared for whatever this bad news, this earth shattering thing is, but never in my mind, Kyle, would I have stood there and went, you know, I bet I was aborted and I survived. That was not on the menu. That's typically not on the menu, like anyone that I've talked to, because that is a fairly extreme way to find out that, but it, it's not as extreme as your story ended up being, but your adoptive mother, um, she sat you down and kind of told you about your biological mother. And part of that conversation was, Hey, your, your biological mother tried to kill you. And so we'll get into the details of, of that exact story because obviously it's worth covering today, but just talk to me about that conversation because it, it, you have a whirlwind of things going through your brain. You're also a child, right? So it's right. not like you're an adult where you can have the ability to reckon with a fully functioning brain. You're basically just, you know, you're your little kid at this point. And so it's like, wait, this isn't mom. This is adoptive mom, but she kind of feels like mom still, but now she's telling me about my mom and then wait a minute. And my mom tried to kill me. So let, let's go there. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what age you find out. I mean, to be honest, right, I see every survivor struggle if they're like 60 and they're finding out when their biologic parent is on their deathbed or you're 14 like me and it's this complete and utter accident and it comes out in this really crappy way or, you know, you're eight years old and you find out through a very prepared way, which is part of the work that I do now is helping set the stage. So these conversations are, you know, healthier that we can have better outcomes, but there is this really, I mean, surrealness, you know, I was raised to know that, uh, that I was loved and not just by my adoptive parents, but by my biological parents who gave me life when they couldn't care for me. And then when you hear those words, right, somebody tried to take your life and you are trying to reconcile that going, um, do these two things exist together? Because how can they love me and try to do that to me? Right. And so you have this really crisis of identity and 
And really, I mean, in some ways, a crisis of faith, right? Of going, okay, God, I know you spared my life. You created me, but no, just no, right? How is this my life? And then as you're having this really interior struggle, even at the age of 14, right? You also have this exterior struggle looking at the culture out there and going, oh no, oh no. This is what the world out there by and large says about abortion. And so if they're saying that it's a right, what does that say about me? And so then you see the, ex the exterior butt up against the interior, and then you have this whole right inner turmoil going on. And then at the age of 14, I was a people pleaser going, huh, I can't tell anybody how awful this is for me. Aren't I just supposed to be grateful? Mm. Well, what... <sighs> There's so much more that I would like to address there because I was just talking to someone the other day about uh, people that talk about sexual assaults that happened years ago. It's like, well, it makes sense that if someone – I won't get into all the details of the conversation, but it makes sense that if a young girl is sexually assaulted and her sexual assaulter whispers in her ear when he's done, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you, are you shocked that she didn't immediately run to mom and dad or run to the police? Can we have some grace for this young lady? Now, there are other people that just make up the story's whole cloth, and that's not what we're talking about. But obviously, there's so much emotion happening as you're mm -hmm. trying to develop into a young lady. Let's go back to the young lady that was your mother, Ruth. Let's talk about what life looked like for her when she was 19. Yeah. And, you know, this has been a long journey to know my story and then find out even more secrets than my adoptive parents knew. So they adopted me knowing, you know, my birth mom, Ruth, was 19. She was a college student, um, knew she had been dating my biological father. Now I know they were actually engaged to be married. They had dated all throughout high school into college. And... There were reasons that my birth parents were not supported, right? My, I now know my birth mom's parents didn't have a lot of respect for my birth father, and that wasn't through any fault of his necessarily, right? I mean, they were not people who were, con were unconditional love people, right? Things were very, very conditional with them. And so, you know, they they weren't supportive of my birth parents relationship. And so when my birth mom found out that she was pregnant with me, which, you know, she didn't even recognize it. I, you know, we all see those videos where women go, I gave birth and I didn't even know I was pregnant. And I look at them and go, what? Like, mm. how do you not know? How? My birth mom was in similar shoes at the age of 19. She didn't realize that she was pregnant. She was athletic, right? She had some physical weird things going on, but she didn't recognize anything as, as pregnancy symptoms. And I'm sure some of that is sort of denial at the time, right? Of like, man, I, this can't be a situation. I know it's unsafe for me, but you know, she didn't realize she was pregnant with me and her mother, my maternal grandmother was an OBGYN nurse and supervised a lot of nurses in a nursing college. And so you know, that summer of 1977, my birth mom was confronted by her mom because she recognized that there was something physically changed within her. And I want people in our culture to put themselves in the shoes of both Ruth and my biological father, right? For the guys listening, like, imagine what it's like to be in love with a woman, find out that she's pregnant and be scared to death, right? At a young age, but also know that you love this person and you are willing to do what it takes, but then be sat down by her family and be yelled at so loud that the windows rattle on the house and other people can remember that. 
and be told you have no say, right? There is nothing to be done. This will be taken care of. And within days, my birth mom was forced into a hospital and that late term abortion was started. And I can tell you, you know, now with my birth father, I know that really that was that was their last real moment together. After the abortion, they only spoke on the phone one time and that was related to her ring. I now know that she was told that she had to sell his engagement ring to pay for the abortion that she didn't want. Wow. Layers of that onion just keep uh, getting worse and worse as you describe it. I, I didn't realize uh, most of those details weren't in, those weren't in the book. And so that's one thing that I do talk about, Melissa. When I talk in front of large groups about the abortion topic, I, I start with there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then I talk about statistically speaking how I know there are women in the crowd that have had abortions. I also know there are men in the crowd that have paid for abortions, that have sat by and watched as their children uh, were, were taken. And that also the grandparents have paid to make their problem go away because they've got a perfect family, right? The perfect family. And it's a, it's a young lady. Oh, she's 15 and she got pregnant. Well, we can't have the guys down at the golf club know that. So we're just going to pay four or 500 bucks to get this to go away. Like uh, I've seen that depravity, even in my own, my own town, my own town, mm -hmm. unfortunately, but let's go back to that fateful day at St. Luke's regional medical center in Sioux city, Iowa, and take us through the process of the saline induced abortion that your mother and her doctors tried to use to kill you because in, in modernity, we don't really talk about saline induced abortions, but back then that was a fairly common practice. So take us through what, I guess you could talk, even though this is macabre to say, take us through what a successful saline induced abortion would normally look like. And then take us through what, you know, basically you went through. Right. So I am, I am the face of what an unsuccessful abortion is a live person, right? We have to reckon with that in our society to say, man, that's what abortion is, right? This is, there's no beating around the bush. We all know this. We, we need to stop pretending like we don't know. Hmm. So in reality, you're exactly right. That saline infusion abortion was the most common procedure back then. And, and frankly, they stopped performing it because too many of us survived the procedure. That's why we saw them move to much more, quote unquote, effective ways of making sure people like me aren't born alive. So we, that's why we ultimately saw, you know, D&Es ripping a baby apart, partial birth abortion, right? Because people like me dared hmm. to defy the odds. So you know, that saline infusion abortion involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid. And so, right, they would remove a little bit of um, amniotic fluid and then they would fill the womb with this toxic saline. And the intent of it was to poison and scald the child to death. So typically procedure lasted about three days. If the child was lucky enough, they would die within about the first 24 hours and then they would induce labor in the remaining time. And of course, the intention is always for a dead baby to be the outcome. But if folks go through some articles like the Dreaded Complication Series in the Philadelphia Inquirer back in 1981, that was up for a Pulitzer Prize. It is a horrific, nasty read, but I can tell you that, that it's a worthy read to understand what abortion is and what it has been doing to women and children for decades. But through it, you know, you can read about how babies like me were either, you know, being born alive and being blackened, right? And maybe not living for very long or being delivered dead, or yes, also, you know, accidentally being born alive. And 
you know, I now know through my medical records that my birth mother's abortion lasted for five days, not three days. Uh, I often joke, I'm really stubborn. Like I'm just not going down. And, uh, you know, but all kidding aside, right? I soaked and I soaked and I soaked in that toxic salt solution while they kept trying to induce her labor and I wouldn't budge. And finally on that fifth day, I was delivered at St. Luke's Hospital believing that I would be a successful abortion. And, you know, that day that I now celebrate as my birthday is the day that I accidentally survived my own abortion procedure. Hey guys, real quick. Here recently, I went on a hunting trip with a group of guys and one of the guys had lost 50 pounds on the carnivore diet. And some of you guys don't need to lose a bunch of weight, but you're trying to maximize your overall health. And a lot of you are experimenting like me with the carnivore diet. But the problem is, is you don't have a cattle operation that you can trust to get you high quality beef. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends, the official beef delivery partner of Undaunted Life, Primal Beef. Primal Beef is a cattle operation owned and operated by Sean Glass. He's a retired Navy SEAL that has partnered with Jocko Willing to launch Primal Beef. So what makes Primal Beef different from other fly-by-night beef delivery companies? It's a combo of the following. All-American Black Angus cattle. The beef comes from one farm. That's one farm in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. The beef is all natural, no hormones ever, no mRNA ever, and no vaccines ever. And after slaughter, the beef is actually dry aged and then hand cut by artisan butchers and then flash frozen to ensure that it maintains tenderness, marbling and flavor. And here's another really cool thing for every box sold. Primal Beef donates meat directly to a member of America's Special Operations Forces through the C4 Foundation. So you can take pride in knowing that your purchase will help literally put food on the table for America's finest warriors. Stave off veganism and try Primal Beef out today by going to www.primalbeef.com. That's primalbeef.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 10% off of your first order. The great thing about that promo code is you can use it and stack it on other deals as well. Again, that's primalbeef.com. Promo code Kyle, that's K-Y-L-E, to get 10% off your order. And we'll get back to what happened thereafter, but I do want to read a quote from your new book, and we'll talk more about the new book, but it's called Abortion Survivors Break Their Silence, and I want to read this quote here. I've since learned that they told Ruth, your mother, not to look as I was delivered, that I was a hideous monster. They even told her the abortion was successful, that I was dead. Ruth was afraid to ask if I was a girl or a boy, and neither her mother nor the doctor volunteered the information. Unbeknownst to Ruth, they simply set me aside to die. Now, it's hard for me to even read those quotes, okay? It was hard for me to read this book. Um, I just, I hate bullies. I hate this so much, Um, and the men in my audience hate it, and I try to give them a way where they can reckon with this type of information. But you should have come out a hideous monster because of what they did to you. Because of what that saline-induced abortion is supposed to bring. So I don't even really need you to comment on that because I I, I do want to move on to – and again, it's it's hard for me to paint someone that I don't know in this way, but Ruth's mom, your grandmother, Helen, uh, obviously she was kind of the ringleader in pressuring this abortion. But I do want to read this quote from the book as well. Many years later, I found – and spoke to the nurse who was present at my delivery. More on her in just a second. Not only did Helen make it clear to the nurses that I was to be left unattended, but no one was to ever tell my birth mother the truth or they would regret it. My heart still breaks for those nurses. They were placed in an agonizing position, unwilling accomplices to deception and a total disregard for the suffering of a tiny dying baby. So I don't know if you ever got closure with Helen 
or any of those types of things. I want you to kind of talk about that because this is like a movie villain. That's what this sounds like to where it's that, it's that, that evil mom, uh, that, uh, you know, the Oedipal all consuming mother that has complete control over her husband and her children and will do whatever it takes to do what she thinks is right in her own mind and to threaten these nurses by saying essentially, even if this baby comes out alive, don't you dare tell my daughter what's happening again. This isn't my family. This is, this is ultimately your family. How have you come to closure? What all have you learned about that circumstance? Because the, just reading in the book, I was just furious. Yeah. And I think that's, <clears throat> you know, that's a normal human response, isn't it? For sure. us to have righteous anger over injustice. And, you know, what I can say is, God has been so deliberate, I think, in my life of like, okay, I'm going to unfold this piece of the story in in a manageable time when it is something that you can tolerate, right? If I would have been told all these things, Kyle, when I was 14, I would have probably just, right, that was it, right? I don't think I would have been able to manage all of those pieces, even though, right, the more I've learned, the more my love has grown for my biological mother and my biological father. And I mean, this sounds so weird to say, I'm going to, I have to preface it because it does sound so weird given the circumstances, but I do have love in my heart for my grandmother as a fellow broken human being, right? I can't, I am not in a place of anger, condemnation, judgment towards her. That is not why I share our story. And, I, and her name is even a pseudonym, right? I am not out here to blast her story to the world. I have tried to tiptoe and manage my way through it, but share it at the same time so that people end this cycle. I meet too many women who have gone through the same thing that Ruth has of a controlling mother, a controlling father, the Christian sitting next to you at church, the pastor who has done it, who has recommended it, supported it, right? All of those things. So sometimes we have to break our silence so that other people know they're not alone and the cycles change in families and our culture. And I guess in many ways, right, Jesus just made me to be this sort of like cycle breaker. And as a former people pleaser, holy geez, I mean, this has been uncomfortable for me, but this is what the world needs to understand. And yeah, now I know they told Ruth I was a successful abortion. She didn't know. I ultimately was rushed off to the NICU. Now I know that my grandmother followed the nurse in who took me there. And that's when she pointed at them and said, don't you ever tell my daughter this baby survived. I was ultimately moved to another hospital within a few weeks. And, you know, I always thought that that was for more medical care. And that is true. But now I know, right, there was this other backstory behind why it happened. Well, Melissa, even inadvertently, what you described there is you described the the beauty that is the gospel, because regardless of our level of depravity, the the gospel applies to us. And again, that that's why I start with there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we're all condemned, if not for that. And so 
everybody's level of depravity is their own and we all have our particular favorite favorite flavor of depravity some people's favorite flavor is lying on their taxes some people's favorite flavor (laughs) is murdering people but it's all our flavor of depravity and i have shaken the hands of people that have murdered people that have raped people that have abused children and they're now saved and covered by the blood of the lamb and they are afforded the same rights to salvation and the absolving of their sin as everybody else so Yeah. Okay. Amen. I'll take that as a cosign. You have to see the humanity of other people, right? Sure. And it changes everything. Well, Melissa, as I'm saying all that, it sounds really virtuous of me, but I'm saying that because I have to, because I got a bit of an anger problem. I got a bit of an edge to me. And again, I just can't stand real injustice, not fake made up injustice. Like, oh, somebody asked me where I was from and I got, you know, it's a microaggression. I mean, actual injustice. And there's nothing more unjust than doing this to a a living human being. But let's go back to that room. You've been delivered. You've been put to the side. Everyone in the room assumes that you are dead. And a nurse who, as far as I know, you don't know who this woman is, notices that you're whimpering. So let's go back to that. Like, I mean, I would want to find this woman with, with every fiber of my being. And I know that you have some of that in you, but like, again, this is, this is a movie script. This, this doesn't seem like real life. Like you're a dead baby that all of a sudden isn't dead anymore. Let's talk about it. It is like something out of a a movie, right? A movie that Hollywood would never want to write. You know, our culture is like, nope, movies like that don't exist. Um, But they do, right? We're all over the place. So yeah, I, my APGAR score, right? If people have had babies, right? You know that you get an APGAR score when you're born. I mean, mine, mine wasn't great. I think I was like a six, if I remember right. And uh, out of a scale of, you know, one to 10. And then within five minutes, I was nearly dead. And so I don't know how long I was laid aside. I don't know how long those arguments ensued of, you know, my grandmother saying, you will leave this child. Um, but I do know that babies like me at that hospital actually were taken to a utility closet and placed in buckets of formaldehyde and left as medical waste to be picked up later. And, you know, this is stuff I shouldn't have to talk about, right? I shouldn't, especially as someone who's gone through trauma, like I shouldn't have to like investigate the trauma, educate right. people about the trauma. Right. So, but that's right, what I've been called to. And, you know, the only reason why I know that that's where babies like me went is because I've met the nurses who did it and have had to apologize to me. And I always tell people like, you know, thanks for apologizing to me. I don't need you to do that, but they do it anyway. But I didn't make it to the utility closet. I mean, by by the grace of God. And I don't know who that nurse was that rushed me off to the NICU. I do know that she was a tall blonde nurse. I've been given those details and I'm I have a good idea where she's living. I mean, it's such a, my story is such a God story time and time again of like, my life is spared. These God things happen. These people prayed over me. These people loved me into life. God continues to work these miracles. But yeah, I think I know who she is. And, um, you know, I'm forever grateful that she put her job on the line that day and rushed me off to the NICU. But that should not be the case, right? Nobody should have to go, yeah, you know, I'm going to take one for the team and rush this baby off to the NICU. No. Well, because we've all heard the stories of the nurses that do this. They're part of abortions like this. The baby survives and they don't act. And then we've seen things in Congress, you know, basically making sure that nurses can't act. But it shouldn't take a heroic act 
from a nurse to do the right thing. And it's funny to even say the right thing because here she was participating in a murder at the beginning only to become the savior at the end. I mean, I remember there was a, a gentleman of mine, a friend of mine whose father was dying of COVID. And this was at the time when you couldn't set foot in the hospital to even say bye to your family members. You had to say bye to them via FaceTime, right? And a nurse came down the stairwell and found my buddy in the parking lot and walked him up the stairwell, PPE'd the hell out of him so he could say bye to his father. And it's like, it didn't, that didn't need to happen. You know, like that should have never been in place. And the same thing with a situation like this. And so that's your story. It's obviously a rough story. It's a stuff, tough story for you to talk about. It's a tough story for all, anyone to even hear. But you could have just taken that information, Melissa, and kept a very private profile and been very quiet about this because this is a depraved thing that a lot of people would much rather just not talk about, even in polite company, much less on a public platform. But in 2007, at the age of 30, you decide that you want to start sharing your story with the world. Why did you decide to start doing that? I think it's that combination of, you know, faith and healing and looking at a culture of injustice and going, if not me, then who, right? And I think, you know, in many ways, I mean, people will figure this out about people like me, we are so influenced by that trauma in the womb that we have a fight or flight response, right? We look at everything in the world and we're like, I'm either gonna fight or I'm gonna run. God never made me to be a runner. And I've Mm -hmm. come to appreciate that wholeheartedly. And um, I hope that other people walk through that as well, right? Because we we think we know what we're capable of, but when we step forward in faith, I think that's when we truly become who God created us to be all along. And so, you know, when I first started sharing my story, I thought, this is nice, right? I mean, I'm doing this for you, Lord, like, cool, one and done, right? Could this be a one and done? And what I figured out along the way is like, this is not a one and done. This is my life's calling. And I am so much stronger than I ever thought I was. And I think when we stand up to the bully of our culture and the abortion industry, and we feel like I'm not gonna survive this, right? They are gonna attack me and they have, right? Time and time again. And they belittle and marginalize you and shame you and attempt to, to shame you into silence. And you really are faced time and time again with that choice of like, Am I going to go dark? Am I going to go quiet? Am I going to let them shape who I am? Or am I going to keep believing and become stronger? And that's ultimately, you know, what I've done in my life is keep showing up. Well, and the thing, Melissa, is, is so someone will look at someone like you that has taken the slings and arrows or someone like me who, who does a show like this where I talk about incendiary things like no boys can't become girls. No, we shouldn't murder babies when they're in the womb, you know, crazy things like that. And they, they, they'll ask like, how do you get through those situations? And the answer is one situation at a time. That's how I get through it. And so it's like, you can't deal with all the negative comments all at once. You deal with them one at a time. You get to choose whether you engage with them or not. You get to choose whether you engage with the attacks or not. And then you just move forward. But if you're doing this as a mandate from God, if you feel like you're over the X, right? (laughs) All your, the only choice you have is to keep going, right? There, there's never like, I I think people don't really understand with people like you that do these things that are courageous, but seem courageous just to normal everyday folk. It's like, look, you don't, we are compelled 
to continue. It's not like every day we're having to wake up and be like, well, am I going to tell my story again? Let me make a decision. No, we've pre-decided <laughs> that we are going to fight for real justice in all these situations. Um, so in 2007, you start doing that by, by doing this publicly, but also in that year, you discover the identities of your birth parents and you actually reunited with Ruth that year. And so I think that was on the heels of you, you know, speaking about this publicly, but I want to read a quote from your new book here that kind of gets us into this discussion. I'm grateful to say that Ruth didn't have to wait too long for answers. Our face-to-face -face meeting was a moment of redemption and reconciliation. I got chills when she said to me, Melissa, for years I struggled with deep regrets and shame. Why hadn't I run away to save my baby? Why hadn't I fought harder against my mother? I learned to live with the horrible emotional pain that my compliance had caused your death, a pain that never healed. So this is a woman that now knows you're alive, and yet she is still dealing with with the pain of being a compliant accessory to murder. What mm -hmm. an unbelievable bevy of emotions that she's having to deal with in this, in this time. But just take me through, like, I can't even imagine what that was like walking into the room to address Ruth in that moment and just take us through what that was like. Yeah, and I'll just like, let me add some context to that. So I found out who they were in 2007, found my medical records, which, you know, most survivors will never have any medical records. And frankly, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is confront our culture to say, stop shaming survivors for not having medical records, right? Stop accusing us of being liars, of wanting to be famous. My gosh, it is not our fault when the medical professionals and abortion industry don't want to document this. Stop shaming us. Hmm. Um, but I am one of those who have my medical records, and that's how I found out who they were. Um, and actually, I did not meet Ruth until we, we actually started communicating, not until 2013, and we didn't meet face-to-face -face until 2016. I had a little wow. bit of contact um, with my birth father's family. He ended up passing away at at the age of 51, before we could ever communicate, I sent some communications his way. Um, you know, God's plans and our plans don't always match. And I have had to, to learn to respect that and see the bigger picture. But, you know, the reason why I didn't have any communication with Ruth for so long is because I couldn't find her. I had some communication with her family. And they never told me that there was this big secret, right? Like, oh, P.S., don't approach us again because we never told your biological mother you survived. That, that's not how that letter went. It was um, enough information to probably try to keep me away. And when we moved to Kansas City back in 2013, her family sort of got this really God moment, realizing this is where I was. They saw me on TV. Hmm sometime in between that. And that's when they had to finally tell her, you know, without naming names, they knew immediately who I was by the details of the story that I knew at the time. And frankly, I look exactly like my biological father. So they knew that. So yeah, put yourself in Ruth's shoes, like around 2010, she's lived right 30 some years thinking the abortion was successful. And there's this like incredible joy, right? Knowing your child survived. But then the anger at your family for what had happened in the first place, then the secrets and them knowing that she had suffered in her life with that having happened and still not breaking their silence. And then in right in her life, she had this deep fear of Melissa must hate me. Right. There's no way she could love me the way I hear her say she does. There's no way she could forgive 
any of us. And man, the pro-life movement and other people like her must somehow hate me. No. Okay. We can't, I don't want to skip over this, but I, I, again, as I'm reading your book, it's just, again, just the, the visceral, hopefully righteous anger that was welling up in me uh, into all the people that were involved here, but to her family that they literally waited until the last moment to address Ruth and say, Hey, you might be hearing some stuff coming out here soon. By the way, whoopsie daisy, here's some information that we kept from you for 30 plus years. Like, did you get any sense of how Ruth was able to reconcile that with her family? What were there, were relationships severed because of that? Because of all the different things that could possibly happen, a severing of a relationship seems like it would be likely the top thing on the menu. I mean, how does, how does one go about dealing with that level of betrayal from family? Yeah, it, that's a hundred percent what has happened, right? I often, I mean, you know enough about how abortion impacts lives and families to understand sure. that, right? Abortion doesn't save relationships. It ends relationships. It creates horrible circumstances. Right. And we see entire families change for generations by abortion. So many times I'll meet people and they'll go, man, there's this thing that happened in my family and we don't talk about it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. And really, this is what I want people to understand. This is what I want the church to have to face is like, if we don't talk about this, even in our churches, what an incredible injustice we're doing to the preborn, what an incredible injustice we're doing to women and men, and what an incredible injustice we're doing to families because we are thwarting God's grace in families' lives for there to be healing. So right. get with the program, church, like, come on. But that is, right, that's what happened in my birth mother's family. There had already been, right, this the strife in the family because of the dynamics and then this forced abortion and the secrets. And, you know, the way I often describe it, Kyle, is like I look at their lives and I know God gave them so many opportunities, right? So many paths like, whoops, the abortion failed. Hey, you might want to do something different. Oh, uh, the baby survived and you could give her the opportunity to parent. Oh, mm, oh, not right. So look at our own lives and go like, what is God trying to tell you? Is God giving you multiple opportunities to, to make things right? And are you going to say yes to that? Or are you just going to keep following your own will and screwing everything up? I think that's absolutely the case. And I want to key in on something that you just said. It, it actually relates to the next quote. This is a, a lengthy quote from the book, but it's just basically giving us an idea of, okay, God can use and does use painful, dark, awful situations to bring about his light and his glory. So let me read this here. My parents were a huge support to me as I continued my search for answers about my history and the years that followed. And they weren't the only ones I drew closer to. I found solace in my faith in God, which became more essential and more personal than ever. Yet, in spite of this enhanced closeness with God and my parents, a sense of aloneness as an abortion survivor took root in my soul. But now comes the good news. God used those feelings of isolation as a driving force in my life. Those feelings drove me to learn more about my origin story and to connect with my birth family. Those feelings drove me to become a voice in our culture that raises awareness of abortion survivors so that others can see that, that every life does matter. Those same feelings also drove me to connect with other survivors and help them break their silence so that they too can bear witness to the value of every life. So let's go back to the church. 
The church loves to avoid things that seem icky. And let's just be honest, the abortion thing seems really, really icky. And I have seen pastors that are terrified of the women in their congregations that have had abortions. And so they don't mention abortion at all, or they hop into the subject matter and hop right back out because they're cowards. And all they're doing is missing out on an opportunity Mm -hmm. to hold a mirror up to the woman or to the man that's involved in this process and say, this is your depravity. It is sin. It is terrible. And it can damn you to hell if you don't have the propitiation of your sins by the blood of the lamb. And then you share a full-throated gospel with that person. But if a person sitting in the congregation thinks that, well, you know, Jesus didn't die for me because he didn't need to, because I'm great, because I'm forgiven, because I'm a victim, because I'm whatever their, their thing is, you're missing out on an opportunity. So my, 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 I guess mandate to churches is you have to talk about the subject. Don't sit there and say, Hey, if you've had an abortion, stand up and then basically rail on these women and point at them and say that they're awful, but point them to the only one that can give them true closure and true forgiveness. I just, I don't know why pastor, well, I do know because they're cowards, but talk to me a little bit about that because the church is the best place for the sick to go. And yet pastors are sitting there with all these sick people in their congregation and they're refusing to address the illness. Yeah, I think it's this, I mean, it's the culture out there, right? By and large, part of it. I mean, we are impacted by our culture, but I think folks just don't even begin to take the time to understand how we can hold these two things together at the same time, which is the righteous anger over the act of abortion and yet the love and forgiveness for someone who has been impacted by it. But who but the church, right? Who but the church and Jesus' followers to know that, right, he is the only only balm in the middle of it, right? And that we have to talk about the hard things in order to help people experience the love and forgiveness of Christ, right? Like we can't, if not, if, right? Just like when I went through in my life, if not me, then who? So, hey, pastors, if not you, then who? We can't leave it up for somebody else. And, you know, if I can be brutally honest, because I feel like I can have this conversation with you, I get really irritated by pastors who pat themselves on the back and are like, we talk about this on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Oh, good for you. Where are you the other 364 days out of the year? Yep. So again, right? Like we, people should be able to show up at church and be like, man, this is different than our world, right? I am getting the truth and I am getting the love. And if you're walking into your church and you can't tell the difference between the outside and and the inside, there's your sign. Right. And I tell people all the time, it's like, I'm not condemning good music. That sounds like the music that's in culture. I'm not condemning, you know, sermons that have good lessons that you can take and apply directly to your life. But that's not the point of Sunday morning is to be entertained by a concert to be given life lessons is to come together as the body of Christ to worship the savior and to spread the good news of the gospel. And that's hard to do when you ignore things. Cause you have a lot of pastors that are like, Oh, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And you know, we're not going to fight the culture wars and we're not going to whatever, but it's like, Hey buddy, the abortion topic, it involves culture. It involves politics. It involves all these areas that you say you're too righteous to deal with because we're just going to be concerned about the gospel. And yet they're not preaching the gospel in the areas that are the most dark, 
that need the gospel the most. And so it's like, I don't buy it. It's, it's just like a cheat code for these people because they're scared to talk about it. And I've even talked about how even my home church and the seven or eight years or so that I've been there, the abortion topic has been talked about for like a grand total of five minutes, but they did allow me to come and speak and do my engaging pro-abortion uh, arguments talk for anyone in the church that would want to come. There wasn't a whole lot of resources put behind it. They wouldn't even announce it from the stage. And it was just kind of one of those weird things. It's like, what are we hiding from? Right. Like, like we would never tell someone that's a murderer, like, oh, you know what? There was probably circumstances in your childhood that led to you chopping someone's head off and rolling it down the sidewalk. Like we would never do that. We would never equivocate and we would never let our sermon die the death of a thousand qualifications before we delivered it. But again, that that is, I think you're absolutely right, Melissa, in that it is the, the moment of culture that we live in. And uh, in too many churches, that church is downstream of what's happening in culture, unfortunately. So as part of your work, as part of what you're doing in this area, you did write a new book that I talked about earlier, Abortion Survivors Break Their Silence. I've already read a few quotes from here. And the the thing is, is this book kind of gives you an idea of how common botched mm -hmm. abortions are, where the child thankfully survives. Um, so I guess in, in this particular book, you're, you're doing a bunch of stories. You're revealing a bunch of stories of people that have survived botched abortions and all the stories kind of have a different flavor and there's different circumstances and stuff like that. And so I want to get you to share a particular story here in a little bit, but just in general, why write the book? Why give more of a voice to the people that basically a lot of people on the left say don't even exist, which is people that have survived botched abortions? Yeah. I mean, I've testified before Congress more times than I can count, right? This woman who thought that I could never have a voice and and I should just make, you know, be afraid and all these things. And, you know, many times when I've testified, I've essentially gotten like this little pat on the head, right? Of like, oh, aren't, aren't you so cute? Like, that's not even relevant anymore, Melissa. Like, there must be like one of you. And I would, again, be righteously angry. Like, this is always relevant when you are ending lives through abortion. And, you know, P.S., there are far more of us than you could even begin to imagine. And so you go through this process of, you know, meeting other people and that has brought me healing and brought me more purpose. And then, you know, I knew that God was calling me to, to help them. And what I needed to, to do is help people, even in the pro-life movement and the churches to understand, man, most survivors are not even a Melissa, right? Yes, I experienced a failed abortion that, that spared my life, but we have babies who survive abortion pill reversals, they're survivors babies survive, you know, chemical abortions failing. We have, you know, people who survive stopped abortions. And so I think in order to change our culture, I knew that I needed to, to attempt to change the narrative about who abortion survivors are instead of going, we exist, we exist. And they're going, you don't exist. And I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, time to impart wisdom, educate people, study, study the research and start telling quality stories. And for me, that's what the book is about, is both educating the public and allowing survivors to have a voice because we need to have both of those things happen. You're absolutely right. And it's the difference between saying seven million Jews died in the Holocaust versus reading the story of Anne Frank. Right. That's very different because it's like, OK, this is an actual little girl who wrote this, who lived during this time. And so you're literally giving a face to this this nameless description, which is, you know, uh, botched abortion survivors. So there are a lot of folks from the book. But if you wouldn't mind, is there one story that maybe stands out to you that you could give us just the high level overview of just so our audience can know? 
I think, I mean, all the stories I love in different ways. First of all, men survive abortions too. There are men in this book. I want, I want people to know that you don't see a lot of them. That's a whole nother interview I think you and I could have of like, what happens to men when they don't support the predominant cultural narrative about abortion? That's, that's a conversation. But, sure. you know, I think one of the stories that is so impactful for me is, again, a pseudonym. Mom's name is shared, but kiddo's name is not. So um, we st- share the story of a woman named Rashida who went in for a late-term abortion. She was going through really difficult circumstances. The man in her life was not supporting her. And so she had other children. And in the face of not having support, she went in and had an abortion. And through it, right, she knew God was talking to her, right, of stop, don't do it, stop. And she was so courageous and ultimately stopped this late-term abortion once it started. And in the face of that, right, the words from the abortionists were like, man, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. You're going to live to regret it. And again, unsupported woman and has to be put on bed rest to try to save the baby after she started that abortion. And now she's raising this kiddo who, yes, who has gone through some difficulties, but is loved. And we have stood beside this family. So this survivor who's now about 12 knows her story. She doesn't have to have a sister yell at her. At least my biological parents wanted me, right? We were able to change that family dynamic. So there are outcomes. It doesn't mean there isn't pain for that kiddo who survived and that mom. But what it means is they know they're not alone and we can help support them throughout this journey. Absolutely, and it's in those moments where you can't feel more alone than when you feel like you're the only person that's experienced this. And again, in your immaturity, you thought that you were the only person, right? Well, in your immaturity and your ignorance, because this wasn't something that's just common knowledge, right? You, you think that you're the only one going through this, but when you can lean on the support and the experiences of other people that have gone through something similar to you, there's something deeply powerful in that, which goes back to the whole connection between humanity and our ability to be able to uphold other people. Now, I know one thing that you've done, Melissa, since you've been in this space for so long is you have to deal with pro-abortion arguments and objections quite often. And I built out and I have an entire presentation where I go through the top 18 pro-abortion objections and say, here's how I would respond to them. And I'm, I'm a questioner. So when somebody questions me to get me on my heels, I love questioning them back to get them on their heels because I have the moral position. They don't. I'm not going to let them put me on my heels. But I just want to throw a few of these out uh, to you, some of the more common ones, to kind of get an idea of how you like to respond. So the first one is the easiest one to put on a T-shirt and a bumper sticker, and it's my body, my choice. How do you respond to that? Uh, where was where was my choice with my body? You know, um, again, right, such a faulty argument. The, the body being aborted is not – the woman's body, it's a child's body. And somebody like me, right, we're the epitome of that. Don't talk to me about women's rights if you don't want to talk to me about mine. Well, and certainly it's like the only body left dead at the end of a quote unquote successful abortion is that of the baby, not the woman. And so when they're like, it's my body, my choice, it's like, okay, well, if uh, I stick my finger in your nose, Mm -hmm. I'm inside your body. Do you have the rights to determine what happens to me? Then people are like, no, that's ridiculous. I was like, yeah. Now apply it to what I was just talking to you about. Another one that's common is, and this one's my personal favorite, is no uterus, no opinion. How do you deal with that one? I mean, 
do we even know anymore who does or doesn't have a uterus? Because that seems like that's been like, that's shifting sand. So I feel like that argument like gets shot in its own foot, right? Of, I mean, sheer ridiculousness. And, you know, frankly, that whole argument when they say that, there's an awful lot of us with uteruses that they say still don't have, shouldn't have an opinion. So whatever on that one. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing is you can easily point out the worldview by saying, wait a minute, did you just assume my gender? <laughs> right, exactly. There are hundreds of millions of women around the globe that agree with my point of view. Are they also wrong by default? Right. It's like, of course, you you would never say that. Another common Only one, certain uteruses get to have opinions, I guess. Right. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, the ones that have the approved opinions <laughs> right. uh, from, from our moral betters. Another common one is it's not a human. It's just a clump of cells. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, uh, science, right? Science, uh, we all know this, right? We don't, I mean, we, it's such a dead giveaway in everyday language, right? Even if you're reading like mainstream media, People Magazine is like, oh, so-and-so is having a baby. They don't go, hey, so-and-so is having a clump of cells. The language is so inconsistent. We only use, they only use that kind of language when they are attempting to degrade the situation and and complicate it and make it something very, you know, diffuse. So yeah, no, duh, we know the truth, knock it off. The only place in the universe where DNA sprouts out of nowhere is when a one-celled sperm cell meets a one-celled egg cell and they make a one-celled zygote. And in that moment, there's cell division taking place, cell growth taking place. And if we found a one-celled organism on Mars, it would be wall-to-wall -wall coverage with every newspaper on the planet about how we found life on Mars. And yet, it, whenever it's developing inside the womb of a woman that doesn't want it, all of a sudden, it's just a clump of cells. Right. Now, I mean, it is... This is we have to face this as a society, right? That this is this is eugenics, right? This is this is the worst of the worst that we are still facing. Why are we we are why are we allowing those who are the weakest and most vulnerable to be killed? I mean, I think whenever you whenever you look at scripture and you look at the pagan worshipers of Baal and other of these types of gods, what would they always sacrifice to these gods? They would sacrifice the tissue of babies, right? They would sacrifice the lives of children to these babies. And so this is just a demon that's, you know, thousands of years old that is still working and operating today. Uh, now, the the biggest one that we get, and this is the one that a lot of Republican politicians fall for, is the, the hard cases, which are rape and incest. And so you'll you'll hear these politicians say, I'm against abortion for anything except for rape and incest, as if that changes what's happening inside the woman. And before I get your feedback on that, one thing that I love to do, because I have this on my phone, but I also do it when I'm presenting live, I put up two ultrasounds on the screen. One <laughs> is of my youngest son, Elijah, uh, whenever he was however many weeks of gestation. And then the other is of a baby at the same weeks of gestation, but a baby that was conceived in rape. Yeah. And I tell the person in front of me or the crowd in front of me, I'm like, point to my son because my son was wanted and we wanted him in this family. We couldn't wait to meet him. And the other one was seen as basically a disease as a leech. Yeah. It's like, if you can't tell the difference, then I don't really need to explain my position. So when right. people say, what about rape and incest? What, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a strong proponent of that as well. It's like, so like, tell me which one of these babies was conceived in rape. Nobody knows, right? And I mean, the simple answer is no one's humanity is defined by the circumstances under which they were conceived, right? I mean, my story, for example, so 
like if people are righteously upset or they look at me and they'll go, I mean, one of my favorites is people will go, well, I'm not talking about like abortion as it, as it fits people like you. And I'm like, which, so which people are you talking about then? Like, so the ones that are successfully killed, is that who you're talking about? Oh, understood. You know, when they have to face it, that's when they're like, oh, I'm not talking about you. Well, tell me who you're talking about then. But, you know, nobody's, nobody's circumstances define their worth and their dignity. And I think where we get tripped up, right, as in the policy side of things or even in the church is our hearts go out to the things that women go through, right? And we're like, man, rape is wrong, right? Yes, it is. Incest is wrong. But the child should not be condemned because of the acts of a person who committed a terrible thing. And we have to learn how to talk about and serve in the midst of trauma and pain to say, that is not okay what happened to you. You have dignity and value, woman, and this child has dignity and value. And you know, the one other little thing I will say about this, because I could talk about this for a while. One of my friends was raped and shares her story. And she said something so powerful about it. She said, you know, I went through that pregnancy not knowing if the child was my boyfriend's or my rapist. But what I did know is who his mother is. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a huge key. And also the reality, Melissa, is that uh, the child should not get the death penalty for something right. the father did. So if my dad knocks off a liquor store and kills the the worker behind you know, behind the, the counter, I don't go to prison for that. I don't get punished for that. And nobody would be okay with that unless I was an accessory to that. But if I'm completely oblivious, no one would think I should get that. But in these circumstances, it's like, okay. But, but also I feel like it's very paternalistic in that, oh, this woman couldn't possibly live the rest of her life, uh, you know, and raise this child of a rapist. And yet when you talk to real life mothers, who have raised their rapist babies or babies who were conceived in rape that are super thankful that they're alive today. It's one of those moments where it's a beautiful thing that they were able to do because this baby is innocent of any crime, but we should punish the person that did the crime. And I've been very vocal that I think rapists should be executed and I think they should be executed publicly. We don't execute rapists in America currently, but that would be one thing that would perhaps deter that type of behavior, but we shouldn't be, you know, focusing on those moments and and to give it like its own category. Uh, The last one, or go ahead, please. People don't even realize, right, that in some states, like, that rapist can attempt to have rights to that child. I mean, we need to we need to put our time and attention to ensuring that we support these women and these children, right? Like we've got to we've got to get to it. Well, we're we're certainly on the same page there because it's one of those things where if you hold someone down and violently penetrate them, you are not fit for polite society anymore. I'm sorry. And, you know, I think that your your date with destiny should come sooner rather than later. The last one I want to have to talk about is kind of an afterthought to a lot of people, but this specifically applies to your life, which is, you know, the fetus, as they call it, uh, has to be aborted because there won't be any families that are willing to adopt it if we allow it to be born. So obviously you're living proof that that's not true. Talk to me a little bit about that. Ooh, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, just today, uh, one of my friends who is one of my staff members is going to meet a baby that they might be adopting who was surrendered at a hospital. And without going into detail, I can tell you this was a difficult set of circumstances for this baby and this mom. And guess what? 
there's a family waiting for this baby and will love this baby and it will transform their lives and that baby's life. So yeah, no, first of all, there's more families waiting for a baby than there are babies available to be adopted because we're aborting them. And also, is there any other thing that happens in our society where we go, hey, yeah, no, like death is the appropriate response here. No, let's address foster care systems adoption, right? Let's let's make adoption more cost effective, right? Um, all of these things. Let's improve social economic circumstances, life circumstances. Let's not say that death is the solution to somebody's problems. I'm Amen. sick of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sick of it as well because it's like, okay, so it's better to be dead than to be adopted. It's better to be dead than to be poor. It's better to be dead. Oh, well, we have to kill this baby because it's going to be sick when it comes out. So it's like it's better to be dead than to be sick. And it's like let's let these people have the option to determine whether or not they should be dead or sick or dead or poor, those right. types of things. Let's not pretend as if we can play this entire thing here. But as we uh, wrap to a close here, Melissa, I do want to talk about the Abortion Survivors Network because that is what you have launched. And so you've done a lot to encourage people that are, yeah, that kind of got wrapped up in all this to give them a voice, but also to advocate for them. So talk to us about the Abortion Survivors Network. How could guys in our audience get involved if they'd like to? Ready, set, go. Yeah, ready, set, go. Um, if you are someone who survived an attempt to abort you, first of all, we're here to serve you or support your family. Or if you know a woman who's gone through this, maybe she's parenting the child, raising them. Maybe you're an adoptive family um, or you know an adoptive family. We have support groups for all these people impacted by attempted abortions. We offer healing support. Uh, we serve survivors from every quarter of the globe. We offer trainings in how to find your voice and use it and stay healthy in this crazy world that we live in. Uh, we do lots of educational campaigns and things like that. And that's really where we need people to enter in with us. I mean, first of all, we can't do this without prayer support, financial support. Man, follow us on, on social media and fight with us for us in the comms box, right? I can't respond to everything, right? I fight so many big battles, Kyle. And what I honestly need is sometimes people that just come in and beat back some of the stupid comments, when people are coming at me and saying, you know, oh, how dare you use survivors for to advance this agenda to restrict women's rights. Man, I don't have time for that stuff, right? I need to fight the big battles. Come alongside us, follow us on social media and fight in the comms box for us with some truth. Well, and guys, all that will be in the show notes so you can check that out. But we've covered a lot of ground today. I really appreciate your time and attention. And I just, I, I couldn't be more of a fan of yours and what you're, what you're doing. But for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you wanna get off your chest? No, thank you so much. This has been this has been fun for me. All right, Melissa Odin, thank you for coming on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Melissa Odin. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Melissa's website. I've got a link to her network, the Abortion Survivors Network, and two Amazon links where you can buy her books. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetual. Petua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep
keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.